0: Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm gonna be covering the path to financial independence or what we used to call retirement. I wanna show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I wanna show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful retirement review workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class.
1: I was listening to a sermon by a wonderful spiritual teacher at a unity church in Massachusetts, and she used a quote from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas that said, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And I thought, that's what's happening to me. That not destroy me like, you know, I was in the, you know, gutter with a bottle in my, you know, drinking alcohol, you know, pour down myself. Not that. But I had no, I'd lost my sense of like juice and vitality and energy and enthusiasm. I was just kind of, you know, putting in the hours and living my, and nobody would have looked at my video of my life and been like, there's that Jackie. She's, you know, just kind of living out her time.
2: Do you think money takes up more life space than it should On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life.
0: Hello, welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Jackie Woodside. Jack is a certified professional coach and a licensed psychotherapist and has 25 years experience in both fields. She's authored three best best-selling books, and I'm just going to read the titles here very quickly because I like the titles. Calming the Chaos, A Soulful Guide to Managing Your Energy Rather Than Your Time, Time for Change, I love this subtitle, Essential Skills for Mastering the Inevitable, it's a brilliant subtitle, and then Money Vibe, Your Financial Freedom Formula, Whether You Have Money or Not. She's a TEDx speaker and an expert in creating conscious communities. She's authored 25 coaching programs, including the Curriculum for Conscious Living. Jackie, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast.
1: Oh, it's so nice to be here with you. You've got a great podcast voice. Why, thank you. <laughs> I have voice envy. That yeah, that's like that's an amazing voice for a podcast.
0: Thank you so much. That's you're the yeah. first one to say it, so I appreciate it.
1: Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, I could listen to you all day. Oh, I may wow. close my eyes during the podcast just because I enjoy it so much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna get too embarrassed now. Jackie, <laughs> where do you call home?
1: Depends on what month it is. I have two homes in upstate New York on the St. Lawrence River, a mile from southern Ontario, Canada, in the Thousand Islands region of upstate New York. That is where I call home June, July, and August, and a little bit in September and October. The rest of the time, I mostly live in central Massachusetts in the little lake house there. And I sometimes frequent Washington, D.C. So I have houses in lots of places.
0: Wow. Where'd you grow up?
1: Thousand Islands of Upstate New York, where my summer home, those the two summer homes that I own right next to each other were both belong to one great aunt and uncle and my other great aunt and uncle. Been in the family for six generations, and I'm blessed to own two of them. Six generations. When did
0: that start? Go back, say, what year is that? Six generations.
1: Yeah, late 1800s. The land, not the houses, the land have has been in the family since the late 1800s. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very deeply, deeply rooted and connected to that geographic location. And it's nice to be there in the summers because, as I said, it's a mile south of Canada and it is brutally cold (laughs) in the winter.
0: (laughs) So, I mean… Did you grow up on that land or near that land or just? I did. You did.
1: Well, I grew up in that town. I didn't own that land when I was a child. It was my great aunt and uncles when I was a child. And before that, it belonged to, you know, my great 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 grandfather. You know, it's been in the family for an awfully long time. But as when I was a child, we had a a cottage just, oh, gosh, less than a quarter of a mile downriver from where these two are. And then, so I would wander the whole lane in the summer times. We had a cottage there, but I lived just a couple miles away in that same town.
0: Wow. So this is sort of a a foundational question for this podcast. You know, what did you learn or what lessons did you take out of your childhood about money and especially for you entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, what I learned in my childhood about money, I spent the rest of my life unlearning. (laughs) Yeah. So let's deal with that one first. My mom was widowed when I was two years old. She had three children with a high school education in the 1960s and 70s. So, you know, we were pretty poor. Mom did what she could. She, gen- she worked two jobs most of my life. My dad died very young, obviously, since I was only two. So my takeaway about money from childhood was it's going to be rough. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to just get by. And I can tell you the day that I imprinted that into my consciousness, which I no longer believe, by the way, but that carried me. In college, I, had, I was on a basketball scholarship, but you also, that was for tuition, but you also have to pay for, you know, books and social life. And so I was on a basketball scholarship and worked two to three jobs. I worked awake overnights in different group homes for people with disabilities. I worked in the horse farm and I worked in the cafeteria in college, graduate school, same thing. I worked awake overnights in graduate school to help pay for getting through my education. So, and notice the theme, right? It was tough and it wasn't going to be easy, but I just got by. And at some point I distinguished that was my belief about money and I chose to unlearn it. And now, well, I have a little jingle about my well-being. That's, I'm happy, healthy, wealthy, healed, and whole. I am happy, healthy, wealthy, healed, and whole. So I have this little jingle that I sing to myself and have for many years. And that, among other things, transformed my relationship to money where I now believe you can have financial freedom whether you have money or not. And I do have money, and I'm financially free, and it's emotional freedom that I really have. My lesson about entrepreneurship, you know, my grandfather on my maternal side was a farmer with his own business. My grandfather on my father's side owned a heating and air conditioning business that he ran out of his garage. So I had entrepreneurs in my family, but mostly I learned that you would better get a job and make a decent living because it's not safe otherwise, and I had to unlearn that as well.
0: So I'm just curious how, if you have relatives that had a farm and had businesses, how did you get the... Because it was really hard.
1: Yeah, because it was really hard. And then my grandfather, who owned the HVAC, they didn't call it HVAC back then, but he died in a car accident and left my grandmother, you know, without a job. So my father, my grandfather, and my uncle all died within car accidents within nine months of each other. And that was kind of the strong entrepreneurial side of my family. And so it was just like, yeah, no, get a job, because if you have a job with benefits and then you die you know, your spouse will be left with something. Yeah. And so, you know, my grandfather was a farmer. So, you know, on Christmas morning, he would be up going to the farm, milking the cows, you know, leaving at early right after dinner because they'd have to do the evening milking. So, you know, it's either really, really hard, or you're not going to be able to support your family if you're an entrepreneur. So that was, you know, just some unique circumstances that even though I had entrepreneurs in my family, I was like, yep, no, <laughs> not doing that. So I'm the only one in my generation, or was the only one in my generation. That was an entrepreneur. My sister now has retired from a state job that she had for 30 some years, and she has a holistic healing business, but that's after her retirement.
0: So just really quick, I know that, so you go to college and you and when you go to college, you're thinking about getting a job. How do you transition from getting a job, going to college, getting a degree, getting a job to I'm going to launch my own thing?
1: Yeah, so I was a clinical social worker. My master's degree was MSW in clinical social work. So I was in the mental health field. And my first transition into entrepreneurship was going into private practice as a clinician. I'm fluent in American Sign Language. So it made it a little bit easier for me as a clinician to, you know, I had a subspecialty that you know, a handful of people in the country have so as clinicians. So that really built my career. And then from there, I transitioned from that into a full time teacher, speaker, professional development trainer, and coach. That was a little more bumpy, I would say, because I didn't, you know, have that subspecialty. Although now, because I've been doing this for so long, I also do a lot of professional development training leadership work and executive coaching with deaf people using my fluency in American Sign Language again. But when I first went from being a therapist to speaker and teacher, I didn't realize how easy it was for me to be an entrepreneur in a private practice with a very rare subspecialty so I dove into this thing of, you know, being an author and teacher and speaker thinking like, well, I'll just figure this out. Just about killed me the first couple of years. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm nothing if not a hard worker and resilient. So I stayed with it. And that was many, many years ago. And I love what I do.
0: There's something about somebody that grows up where somebody in your family gets up to milk the cows and then has to do the evening milking that makes you work harder. Yeah. Like it makes you understand that this is going to be hard.
1: Right? You know, my family has a, all my brother and sister and myself, we all have a very strong work ethic. You know, my grand- grandfather that died with the HVAC company, his son, my uncle Tom also started an HVAC company out of his garage and built it to a multi-million dollar international company. So super proud of what he was able to do.
0: Yeah. So you've been talking about igniting human and the spiritual potential for a long time. Can you define what that means to you?
1: Yeah. So I just have this belief that we're all here kind of with a divine purpose. I call it your soul print and and that life itself is enriched, not only your individual life, but life itself is enriched, the more that each of us aligns with our infinite flame, that soul spark, that soul print, if you will, that the more we align with who we came here to be, the happier, more fulfilled we are, but also the more we rise up into the fullness of who we came here to be, the more that humanity evolves into more hospitable loving, kind place. So I've committed my life and my career to that. You know, igniting the flame of infinite possibility is one of the lines in my mission statement, actually. Yeah, my mission is I'm a torchbearer for a vision of a world transformed, illuminating freedom, fulfillment, and passion, igniting the flame of infinite possibility for the human spirit. So that's my mission in life. And that's what gets... Small,
0: just a small mission.
1: Yeah, yeah, just something little to get myself up and going in the day. So that's my commitment in life, that we ignite the flame of infinite possibility that is inherent in each and every one of us. When we understand the infinite potential of life itself, when we know our purpose, our mission, and our values, and then we just go out and start creating life around that. Now, that sounds kind of easy and simple, maybe, but it's the hardest thing you'll ever do is sort out kind of who you are and then design your life. So I'm launching a course in January called living in the domain of miracles. And it teaches you exactly how to do that. My curriculum for conscious living is the basis of this living in the domain of miracles. And that's exactly what I teach people to do. It's so powerful.
0: So just real quick, I want to go to the type, to the human and spiritual. It doesn't sound like you're differentiating between the two. And I was going to ask a question about what's the difference but it sounds like they're very much the same in your sort of view. You
1: know, I think we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I forget who to attribute that quote to. I, honestly, it's not my quote. So, yeah, you know, I, I do believe that we all have the spark of divinity inside of us. And, you know, when I on rare occasion meet someone that I can't stand, remind myself that, I, you know, even though I can't stand you, I'll honor the divinity within you. So it helps, you know, I was just, I'm in D.C. for a few days doing business here. And I went out to grab a coffee this morning, walk my dog. And I just made a point of like looking at every single person that I was looking at. And I was walking along the street. And then I recognized like, crap, I don't have my wallet. So I can't go get a coffee. I just walked out without it this morning. I'm not home. I'm out of my routine. And as I was walking back to the house without my wallet with me, a homeless guy said, Hey, can you help me out? And I was like, dude, like, I really don't, I don't have anything with me. He said, there's an ATM right there. I said, really, I'm not kidding. I don't even have my wallet with me. So I I walked away from him and he looked a little disappointed. And I thought, well, what can I do? It was only about four or five blocks from my house where I'm staying. It's not my house, but where I'm staying. And I came back to the house very quickly. I had a one o'clock meeting, so I had to be very quick. And I went through the house of where my friend is. She has, I knew in the basement, she's got boxes of things that she needs to get rid of. I tore through those boxes. I found a large man's shirt, an LL Bean one that's thick and warm the gentleman didn't have shoes on. So I couldn't find any shoes big enough, but I found some big wool socks and a couple of other things. And I went in the refrigerator and grabbed some food, threw everything in a bag, ran down five blocks to see if he was still there. Sure enough, there was him and another person who had been joined by them. And I gave them a bag full of things from my friend's house. I felt like Robin Hood a little bit. Stealing from the rich to give to the poor. And that's, you know, that to me... I mean, that's not to toot my own horn. I I didn't have to do that. But if I'm going to live my mission, that I believe you can ignite the flame of possibility in everyone, you should have seen his face. I was like, dude, you asked me for money. Really? No kidding. I don't have any today. (laughs) My spouse took my wallet. But here's what I've got. And he was, you know, really touched and moved that I did that. So that's, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you're on the front of Time magazine or you know, making headlines. It's simple ways of acknowledging the divinity in every single person.
0: Have you ever heard the word, and I'm going to screw up the definition, but Tatagata Garba?
1: No, tell me about it.
0: It's a Sanskrit word that basically means that it's the seed that's in each of us. It's the yeah. seed. It's yeah. not the divine because it's Buddhist, right? But it's the seed that's okay. in each of us. Tathagatagarbha. Good Beautiful. word though. So what gets in the way of each of us igniting our own potential? What bogs us down?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me, right? I call it a design flaw. It's a design flaw in the design of a human being because people don't understand this. I've had the blessed opportunity of literally sitting with hundreds and thousands of hours listening to human beings talk about themselves. 30 years as a full-time therapist, 30 years as a coach, that's a lot of hours in the chair listening to human beings. And we all have the same inner conversation. I'm not good enough. What if they find out I'm going to be judged? So the design of a human being, our brain, is designed for us to survive, not for us to thrive, So we are constantly on the lookout for what, and today it's not like, you know, the bear is jumping out of the bushes or the lion is going to come eat us. It's not that level of survival. So how the mechanism, psychological mechanism of the human ego interprets the world today is that I'll experience some kind of narcissistic wound, some kind of wound to my personality of being judged, disliked, embarrassed, marginalized, in some way unappreciated or made wrong. So we're constantly on the lookout for that. So it means we don't take risks. We have a negative inner dialogue. The Cleveland Clinic did research that says 80% of most people's inner dialogue is in that realm of be careful, judgment, criticism, either self or others. And you know this, the, Our inner dialogue is really quite negative. So that's a design flaw. And when you come to understand that that is just the design of a human being, there's nothing wrong with you, you can also then learn to counter it and how to... I say use your mind to train your brain to have a better experience.
0: How many years into sitting with people until you said, oh, I see there's something similar. We're all asking these same three questions.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a good question. My first five years of clinical practice was with children and adolescents, so I didn't see it as much. But probably, I would say, three to five years into when I expanded into, you know, doing my private practice and was working more predominantly with adults, it became evident pretty quickly. And it's all different circumstances, right? Different stories. But if you boil it down, fundamentally, people are self-protective,
0: so it really interesting that when you're with kids, you didn't see this as much. I didn't so is, see it, it, right. is it learned? Do we learn how to self to get to self-second guess ourselves?
1: I don't think so. I mean, yes and no. I honestly think it's part of human development that at some mm-hmm. point when your frontal lobes, the seat of your kind of judgment and wisdom and decision making, gets on board, then there's this constant battle between your emotional center and your kind of rational mind. And your rational mind you know, is careful and cautious. So I don't think it's learned behavior. I think it's developmental because, you know, look, you you know, I didn't have like the greatest younger life and experience even that my dad dying and my mom doing the best she could and all that. But I've worked with people who had perfectly fine childhoods who have the same exact thing. And I've even worked with people like I use this example a lot. I had a, a client once where there was like six kids in the family. Same parents, same small town, same teachers, same coaches, same education, you know, same everything, same gene pool. Of them, like two of them stayed in the small town, kind of had, you know, I hate to say this, but a smallish kind of provincial life, their job and their, their home and, you know, just kind of their same life that they'd grown up with. Two of them went off and like one was in LA and one was in New York as a lawyer making tons of money, like super successful. And the other one was like working in Hollywood, you know, all these contacts, And two of them literally became drug addicts and both died early. Same gene pool, same parents, same messages, same small town, same teachers. So how can you say that it's your parenting that makes you that way? I say it's not. It's not just your parenting. It's partially your parenting, but it's a combination of your genetics, your karma, your parenting, and then your own psychological development. And for those who don't understand that, that you can overcome your thinking and your limiting beliefs by using your mind to train your brain, your life can be pretty marginalized.
0: So, okay. How do I tell that I'm not living up to my potential? Like, what are there common markers?
1: Yeah, you're not. Neither am I. Nobody does.
0: How do I tell I'm not doing the best job I can at living up to my potential?
1: Okay. Better question. You feel unfulfilled. You're bored. You're listless there's something in you that's kind of saying, I could do that. I could try that. I went 10 years of my life that way. And knowing I wanted to be a teacher speaker, you know, moving into this space, I tried in 1994 and failed. And then I was like, not doing that again, because that's what the ego does, right? But it never went away, this kind of inner push, right? And at some point, I got, I was sitting in a, I remember, you know, to the day I was listening to a sermon by a wonderful spiritual teacher at a unity church in Massachusetts. And she used a quote from the Gnostic gospel of Thomas that said, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And I thought, that's what's happening to me. Not destroy me like, you know, I was in the, you know, gutter with a bottle in my, you know, drinking alcohol, you know, poured down myself. Not that, but I had no, I'd lost my sense of like juice and vitality and energy and enthusiasm. I was just kind of, you know, putting in the hours and living my, and nobody would have looked at my video of my life and been like, there's that Jackie. She's, you know, just kind of living out her time. What was that Thoreau quote? Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and die with their songs still in them. I was that person. I was leading a life of quiet desperation. was not awful. I had a great life. I was a therapist. I was making good money. I was well-respected. And I knew there was this other thing. So I think for people who are awake, who pay attention to their inner world, it's very easy to know I'm not living true. So
0: talk about that, the people who pay attention to their inner world. This is a crazy question. You can't probably answer this statistically, but as a percentage, <laughs> how many people pay attention to the inner world versus people who don't?
1: That's a great question. You're a very good interviewer, by the way. So it's a great question. I think I'm a little skewed because like attracts like on the energetic plane. So certainly my life is filled with people who are conscious and aware and you know doing work on themselves. But statistically, what we hear is that 80% of people have their lives, have their minds filled with negativity, which tells yeah. me that 80% of the people aren't really waking up to the fact that your thoughts aren't true. <laughs> They're just your thoughts, patterns of neurons firing, and they don't have to define you. So, you know, in I don't know this statistically, but I would say intuitively. Intuitively, I would say probably a very narrow 10 to 20% of people really are waking up to that there's something bigger in me that wants to be expressed in life and I'm going to commit myself to understanding it.
0: So when you do Client work, or when you're speaking to a crowd of people, think demographically. I'm just thinking about millennials and they're changing the work life balance equations. They're changing. So, do you think younger generations are waking up? are leading the charge, or what's the
1: result? You know, I would like to think that, but that's what we said in the 70s. That's true. You know, and then those people got old and went conservative. So, like, I don't know what happened. So, like, what happened, right? Because in the 70s, they said the age of Aquarius and people are awakening, and, you know, people started using psychedelic drugs to have that kind of spiritual connection, whatever. So, we said that was happening in the 70s, and now we're saying it's happening again. Yeah. I mean, and I I guess just like individual human development is not linear, like it's forward and back and forward and back. If you think perhaps human development is also nonlinear, maybe the 70s was a forward movement. And then we got into Reaganomics in the 80s and, you know, the rise of kind of conservatism over the 90s. And then goodness knows where we are today with a very divided country. I I don't want to get into the politics of it, but you can probably tell from how I speak. I am as liberal as they come because I believe there's only one of us. There's just one conscious. So I do what I can to embrace the whole of it, even when I see things in front of me that just, you know, kind of facepalm and and shake my head at but I say you know Gandhi said this when you see something that you find untenable look at it and say I am that and then look to find the place in you that holds that same energy he didn't that's not the exact quote but you know basically when you find something that you find untenable in life look at it and say I am that and then seek to remove that from yourself
0: I'm gonna just shifting gears a little bit because I know that in some of your books they talk about success tools, you know, the gurus talk about ideas for time management and handling your to-do list more efficiently. And you kinda, of, you know, you kinda of poo-poo that a little bit. What do you suggest we do
1: instead? I do. I say it's a setup for failure. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's like so amazing. What a great question. So let me just say why I say it. it's a setup for failure, right? So there so you can't manage time. And people will be like, what do you mean? You know, all these gurus teach you, you have to manage time. Well, you and I could have, we've been on here for 25 minutes now, we could have spent these 25 minutes doing nothing, not speaking, not engaging, and the 25 minutes still would have passed. We chose instead to spend the 25 minutes engaging in some useful dialogue with some very interesting questions and hopefully interesting and useful answers that gave us an experience. So did we manage time or did we manage ourselves? So I say you can't manage time because time is a constant. You can only, God willing, learn to manage yourself. Your values, your commitments, your decisions, you know, your use of the time that you've been given. So that's why I say you can't manage time. And then I say a to-do list is a setup for failure because people have these, you know, often very long lists of things they want to accomplish on a given day and then they actually have very little time to actually accomplish that because it's committed to other meetings. Or other activities. So, when you don't orient your activities in time, in a time slot, in a time piece of the day, it's just in your head. And your head is not a structure. It's better to get it on paper on a to do list, but it's better still to take that to do list and translate it into your schedule. When am I actually going to do that thing? So, my schedule is populated from the time I get up until the time I go to bed with things that I'm committed to doing. Now, people be like, ah, that's crazy. How do you know when you're gonna feel like it? I don't know when I'm gonna feel like it. <laughs> that's the whole point. <laughs> you train yourself, you know, to make commitments around your priorities and then to deliver on them. And it's a very effective
0: What's the lesson your psycho your inner monologue learns yeah. by training yourself to do the thing and then doing the thing.
1: Yeah it's so powerful. You know, you come to know yourself as powerful. So the context that I bring to it, because otherwise it's just kind of rigid and uptight, right? So the context I bring to it is that my schedule, how I hold it is, is my contract between my physical self and my highest self. How am I going to use the life I've been given today? And I want to use it in a way that's clear and committed. That I'm going to commit myself to making a difference. Now, look, some people were like Jackie. That's just lighten the hell up, right? And, you know. So, and I can appreciate that. But, however, here's the thing: it's your schedule. If you decide, like at you know 3 p.m., I'm not going to talk to this dude on Mindful Money today. You know, you just blow it off. Be like, just be like, dude, I'm not doing it. You know, probably. You know, of course, you're not going to do that. But, you know, I mean, here's a great example. When I was finishing my book called Money Vibe. It was the last day that I had to get it out to the publisher, and uh, you know I, I knew this last section that I had to you know clean up my last pieces of edits. And that morning, I got a text message from one of my childhood best friends, Jackie. I'm in town. I've only got this afternoon. Can we go for a bike ride? I've got the book in my schedule. I've got my friend who I only get to see once a year when she's in town. What do you think I did? I hope the bike ride. Otherwise, this is a terrible story. Otherwise, this is a terrible story. I emailed the publisher. I said, I'm going to need another week. I'll get it to you. Really, no kidding. I'm going for a bike ride. I didn't put that sentence in there. I went for the (laughs) bike ride. Why? Because it's my life. It's my schedule. I'm the one that gets to say. And I always want to live my values. And I'm always going to value my love, my friendships over one more accomplishment and getting things done. So it helps me to be super accomplished and productive because I'm clear on what I'm doing pretty much every hour of my life. However, the flexibility is built in because it's my schedule and I'm the one that gets to say.
0: So you're not saying don't have a to-do list. What you're saying is take your to-do list and put it on your calendar. Like every item should have a 15 minute or 30 minute or an hour window tied to it.
1: Absolutely. So if I've got like five or six things I need to do quickly, I'll put those five or six things in a half hour window you know, call the vet, you know, call to cancel my mammogram. This was (laughs) some of them from this week. Call and make that dentist appointment. You know, so if I got a bunch of quick things that I need to do, it still goes in my schedule in a smaller window. And you can't see all of it on my calendar. But when you click on it, the whole list is right there. Right,
0: right. I'm just... This is not important, but it's a question that pops in my mind. Do you, what do you think about these people that time block or color code their calendars? Do you do any of that? I color code. You color code. Okay.
1: Yeah, I color code. Yeah. You know, I do like the notion of time blocking. I've not been effective at doing it, but I just read, I can't remember, maybe it was on Twitter, a productivity thread on Twitter where a guy says he does three hour sprints in his day one, two, three, four. That's nine hours. So I guess that's, he works a nine hour day. Anyway, he breaks his days into three hours, three hour segments where he's got like specific things that he's working on each of those three hours. I thought that's pretty good, but still not specific enough for me. Like for example, if I, when I was writing any of my books, if I just had in my calendar, write (laughs) book, Right. My brain would get to that hour and be like, ah, I don't know what to do. So instead of write book, I would put things like collect chapter heading quotes, collect quotes for chapter headings, work on the outline for chapter one, write conclusion of the book, write the introduction to the book, right? So specific, specific tasks that I needed to do in that whatever two, three hour time slot that I was doing. Then your brain actually knows what to do. One of the reasons for procrastination is people don't understand that they have to actually tell their brain what to do. So they don't schedule things or they try to schedule things, but they schedule really big tasks without breaking them down. And it has the same effect. Your brain just goes into fight, flight, or freeze, and it will go into freeze or flight, hopefully not fight, and you won't be effective.
0: So I want to dip a little bit into money vibe. So yeah,
1: you, it's a great program. yeah.
0: You apply decades of work into this. And the thing that actually stood out to me was the four factors. So what, can you just kind of give us a thumbnail, the four factors,
1: the four factors of money vibe. Yeah. Yeah. What stood out for you about it? Like what was it that you really felt most well, drawn to?
0: So there's a very common thread across almost yeah. every guest and that is awareness is first. And I know that's so great, isn't it? Right. And so, I'm just curious, why is it so important that awareness is first yeah,
1: you know, we can dive into that easily just with this, the sentence that I use all the time when I teach, you cannot change what you cannot or are unwilling to see, right? So if you're not, and again, I was a therapist for an awfully long time. And what I found when I treat particularly people with addictions, I mean, even things, ugh, I treated sex offenders. So even people that had really egregious levels of addictive behavior, they would say, it's not me, everybody does this. Men addicted to pornography, you don't understand, you're a woman, all men do this, you know, and these were guys who were like losing their marriages, losing their jobs, like really unable. Every alcoholic I ever treated, you know, you probably don't drink that much, you're a therapist, but you don't understand, like everybody drinks this way. So again, the the psychological mechanism of the ego is designed to keep everything the same, so we use things that are the therapists call cognitive distortions that are simply thinking errors. We allow ourselves to think in ways that allow our behavior to stay the same. And we all do it. I have a cognitive distortion right now. I'm not lifting weights. And I'm a postmenopausal woman. If I don't lift weights, I play basketball, I play racquetball. So I have a cognitive distortion that says, well, you exercise and you're keeping yourself fairly fit. That's a cognitive distortion. There's tons of research that says, if you don't lift weights in a postmenopausal woman, you're gonna end up with some form of osteoporosis. So we all do it all the time. So that's the first pillar. You cannot change what you cannot or are unwilling to see. Wow.
0: And then just can you define vibe for us? It, it's not like your vibe, it's, you know, define vibe.
1: Yeah. So thank you for asking. So, the, the, you know, one of the other pillars is your beat creates your vibe that creates your life. And you'd be like, what? Your beat creates your vibe that creates your life. So I have a definition of consciousness that I use that says your it's your consciousness is the vibratory pattern or your vibe that gets created by your beliefs, emotions, attitudes, and thoughts. Interesting. Beliefs, emotions, attitudes, and thoughts, B-E-A-T. So it's your inner world of belief, emotion, attitude, and thought that literally creates a vibratory pattern. We can go into the science of that if you want to or not, but take it for my word, that creates your outer circumstances, colloquially, let me just say very colloquially, we walk into a room, a party, somebody, a bunch of people we've never met before, we're at a wedding reception, and you stand back and you look around the room, and you might be like, huh, I don't know what it is about that guy, I just like his vibe, I just kind of like him, and you gravitate toward that person, or you might look over there and be like, I don't know what it is about that dude, I don't just, I don't like his vibe, or maybe you're at work, and you walk into a meeting room, and there's a couple of people in there, and you're like, hmm we use that phrase, I could have cut the tension with a knife. What does that mean? That's the vibe. That person that you like automatically, don't even know and know anything about them, but you just kind of like them. That's vibration. So we use it colloquially all the time. And now science is also filling that in, that the way that you think about money, how you believe about money, your feelings about money, literally create a vortex that you live in. When I believed it's going to be tough, I don't know, I'm just going to get by, I created that experience over and over and over again. Now I believe there's money everywhere and I just have the blessed opportunity to channel it into my life.
0: So this is the meat for me, okay? My question is, with social media, with comparison, I mean, hyper comparison of everything every day with everything, the news, the inequality that we see, the way news is reported, both sides of the aisle, with all this stuff, How is that affecting our vibe? I mean, doesn't that make your work more difficult? Because it's so negative out there all the time.
1: You know, it affects people according to their vibe, right? So if you're living in a level of consciousness that says, man, things never go my way. You will look across social media and you will see things never go my way. See, look at that person. They've got that. Look at that gal. She got a new job. Look at that guy. He's got the hot girl on his arm. Things never go my way if you live in a consciousness that says, you know, things are going to be tough, but if I work hard, I'm going to be able to make it. I'm going to dig in. I'm going to work hard. And you're going to look across social media, you'd be like, look at that guy. Look at his body. You know, he like works so hard. He goes to the gym all the time. I like I got to see that. I got to be like that. That's awesome. You know, you're just going to see there is no out there. There is you projected outward, reflected back to you. So social media is just a mirror. So I kind of love my social media because it's the reflection back of, you know, the high vibe, beautiful things that I see in life. Now, I do have experiences just this week. There was a summit with all like Neil Donald Walsh and Deepak Chopra and, and a couple of friends of mine were on it. And in fact, one of my friends was founding it and I was looking at it like, damn, Why didn't she ask me to be on that? And then I scrolled down further on on the list of speakers. And a friend of mine who isn't on as many of the platforms as I'm on, isn't a, she was on it. And I was like, what the heck? (laughs) So look, I have it as much as everybody else does. But I've developed the capacity to see it. Like, there I am. So I texted her. I was like, hey, how'd you get on that summit? And she's friends with the organizer as well. And because of my own filter, I didn't see that it was a summit about aging, which I do not speak about. And my my friend does speak about, right? So I can go through that whole experience kind of laughing at myself. So even though I have that same human reaction of, hey, what about me? Why am I not, you know, not one of the good, the, the cool kids, one of the good kids on the platform, I can observe all of it. It does, I don't give it any meaning. I can just, you know, kind of laugh and enjoy and appreciate the whole human experience.
0: So there's this core there where you have the ability to be aware, you know, the first item you're aware. And so you I observe myself doing aware, it. Right. Yeah. What do you think about the idea of that's a privilege? You know, that wow. the awareness is a privilege.
1: That's intense. Do you mean it privilege as in like, because of my race and social class and. Yeah. All that. Wow. That's intense. That's one of the most profound questions I think I've ever been asked. And I honestly, I don't think I've thought of it that way. And I think you're 100% right. You know, and that's not, to, I mean, I was raised super poor by a you know single mother who was widowed and blah, blah, blah. But for whatever reason, I worked hard. <laughs> I was resilient and I, put my, I got a good education. And without my education and what that affords me, Right. Not just the education, but then the type of people that you get exposed to through that type of education that then led me to like the summer between my two years of graduate school. I traveled in Europe for six weeks on super low budget, eating bread and yogurt and with just a backpack and hostels. But. I had six weeks of traveling in Europe. Why did I do that? Because I was in grad school. What happened in grad school? I met other people that wanted to travel in Europe for weeks on end in the summertime. So not just the education itself, but all that that affords you. And then, of course, that leads to the career choices I've had. So yeah, I guess I've never thought of it that way. And I'm super glad you said it because I am super privileged with the education I have now with the economic status that I have. I was not raised this way with this economic status. But yeah, I am highly privileged.
0: And I don't, so what I don't mean by saying that is that you, we should all feel guilty for being successful or getting there because I no,
1: but I think it needs to be acknowledged.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and I
1: think it needs to be acknowledged.
0: I work with one of the things that worries me about the world is there's this message out there that it's difficult or it's hard or you can't do it. And I think most people get that message. And then some of us speak about how you can raise your consciousness. You can do it. We believe in you. And if you don't get that message as a kid and you don't get that message in 25, 30, 35, 40, it's very difficult after 40 years of, I can't do it. I can't become, I'm bad. I'm no good to then go, oh, sure. This person said, you know, I just talked to saw this podcast with Jackie. What's that? It was awesome. We talked about raising your consciousness and I can't do that. You know, how do we become if we've never been told we can become?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm so glad you're asking me that. So I have a couple of things I want to say about the privilege thing. So I'm married to a woman and we have an adopted son who's not white. He's Guatemalan. And he had a couple of years of really difficult mental health challenges. And because of that, we ended up sending him to a wilderness therapy program. And long story short, he's fine. He's doing great. He also has neurological disabilities and learning disabilities. And we send him to a private school specifically designed to teach the way he needs to learn. And I thought between his learning disabilities and his psychological challenges that he had in in puberty, 13 to 15, this kid, because he's not white, would be in the juvenile detention system at 17 But because he's been raised with educated white parents who have the means to pay for a very expensive treatment program and a very expensive private school, he's going to be just fine. He's on track to start college in a year and a half. And kids exactly like him who have emotional difficulties with emotional regulation or who have learning challenges because of neurological disabilities or any other ADHD or whatever their issues are would end up in a very, very different track. One of the reasons I didn't send him to public school was that kids kids of color who have ADHD end up in some kind of correctional, not correctional facility, correctional track, educational correctional track, 70% higher than white kids. And I was just like, not doing that. So, and because I have the privilege of, I mean, it has been a sacrifice for God's sake. My spouse and I look at the numbers sometimes and think, holy cow, what we could be doing if we didn't have this going on. But we have the opportunity to do it and we're blessed to do that. So that's the first thing I want to say, acknowledging that privilege that you're talking about and how that's actually playing out in my family and in my son's life. The second thing I want to say is that as a younger person was diagnosed with depression, ADHD, PTSD, anxiety disorder, and was on a number of psychiatric medications. I had a a therapist write an article about me because I was such a hot freaking mess (laughs) that she found my treatment quite fascinating. I was also diagnosed as a young person with borderline personality disorder. So I, and, you know, anyone who's a clinician would raise their eyebrows and know what that means, you know, that I was really relationally a hot mess. I've recovered from addictions, and I am no longer on in any psychiatric care other than occasional family therapy meetings with my son and my spouse. I'm not on any psychiatric medications, and I am, have been sober for over 10 years from addictive behavior. So wherever you are today, yes, I'm white, yes, I'm well-educated, but I've also been through the fire. So whatever it takes for you at one point, and I really want to emphasize this. At one point in my life, I was going to individual therapy, couples therapy, 12-step meetings three times a week, meeting with my sponsor at least once a week and meeting with my minister once a week and going to church once a week. So my recovery was nothing short of a part-time job for many, many years to get me from the fire into you know this infinite flame of possibility that I live in today. So wherever you are, you know, me like, well, I can't, Jackie, because I'm depressed. So was I. Oh, and did I mention I was also homeless? (laughs) Really, really, I was a hot mess. So wherever you are in your walk, if you have that willingness and grit and resiliency, and just know there's something in you that wants to be birthed forth, and you're willing to do the work, you can transform your life.
0: So I want to make this concrete for somebody. Who's listening? If someone comes to you today or someone's listening and they connect with you somehow and they're like, you know what, I'm going through this and this and this and this, but I'm really interested in igniting my potential. What's the first thing that they should do? What's that first step?
1: Yeah. Reach out and ask, exactly like you just said. You've got to you see the thing is it it really is about your vibration. And if you're in that hot mess place like I was, you've really got to change the people that you're around. And because the way they think, the way they live, the way they talk the possibilities that they see are never going to support you in creating the experience that you want in life. So whether it's an online group or going to a 12-step program, you have got to surround yourself with people who, I mean, I don't know, how do you say it? High vibe thinkers, possibility thinkers who see that life can be transformed. See, most people don't even believe it. They don't even think they can change the way they think and feel. Well, I can't help it. It's just the way I think. You can help it. We know that today. Neuroscience has proven through the magic of neuroplasticity, you can change the way that you think and feel. So, reaching out, asking for help, being around different people, 12 step programs are free. I, find an addiction, go sign up for one. Like we all are addicted to something, right? You know, ACOA or Codependence Anonymous. Go to something, some kind of a 12 step fellowship, because it will expose you to different thinking. Higher level thinking, higher order thinking, and then you know if you yeah. don't, yeah.
0: I was going to say it's so funny that <laughs> find it. Do you remember the movie? I don't know. Maybe you never saw this movie. The movie Fight Club, where they that's what they, one of the things they do is they go to different twelve step programs. And they, yeah. they, they use that as a way to start feeling better about themselves as so they go to different yeah. programs. And yeah, I guess that's possible, right?
1: Absolutely. It was essential. I do not go any longer. And I do depart from the 12 steps a little bit. I say, I am recovered because mm-hmm. I am is the most powerful, two most powerful words that you can use to describe yourself. So in 12 step, they will say, you know, hi, Jackie, I'm an addict or whatever. I don't say that about myself any longer. I say, I am recovered. So even if I were still going to meetings, that's how I would introduce myself, but you know, being in a group, you can introduce yourself any way you want to, but being in a group of people that are committed to growth, committed to transforming their lives, and are thinking at a higher level, debunking their own thinking, you know, it's called metacognition. Thinking about how I'm thinking it is a way of starting to transform your inner world.
0: So, we gave the person who came to you struggling with this and this and this and this and, this and saying, What do I do? What's the next step, right? We gave them the next step. What is something that they're thinking that they should be doing or that other people are telling them they should do that they should just ignore? Don't worry about that. That'll take care of itself.
1: Yeah, probably the, oh, just feel better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, what I don't know what you're so upset about. You know, why don't you just feel better? So that's one. You're not going to, quote, just feel better. You've got to put in the time. There's nothing that you can learn. There's no skill that you can develop without putting in. So that's number one. And then the second is the geographic cure moving to a new location, a new job or a new relationship is not going to be the answer. (laughs) Now, look, if you're in some kind of a battering relationship, again, I don't remember if I mentioned this. I was also a domestic violence survivor and have amazing stories about getting to the other side of that. So I promise you, no matter where you are in life, I was there. So if you're a domestic violence survivor, the geographic cure is fine. Get yourself out of that situation and out of that relationship. But short of that, people think, well, I'm not happy at this job, so I should go to this job and then I'll be happier. You know, I'm not happy in this city or this town or this, so I should go here. No, the geographic cure, changing your outer circumstances is not the answer. It's really not. You're probably going to have to try it a dozen times before you recognize that. But changing your outer circumstances does not create inner change. Look to yourself, to how you think, what you believe, what you are parroting, what's coming out of your mouth. Notice what you write in emails and text messages because that's a little slower. When you start recognizing that your own kind of embedded negativity, fear, anxiety, frustration, criticism is a big part of the problem, that's where you go to work. And one of the best places to do that for free is being able to go to 12-step. Now, if you've got some money and some financial resources, hey, you know, dive in, hire a coach, take one of my programs, get in touch with me, work with somebody who's really a consciousness expert that can help you in a much more rapid, transformational way. But no matter where you are, there are resources. I highly recommend Unity or New Thought Spiritual Movement. You can do a Unity Church service online for free at any time of the day or night by going to YouTube and looking up, you know, Unity Churches. I've got on my own YouTube channel, you will find tons of talks that I've delivered at Unity Churches. Go listen to them. Listen to, to my thinking. I had a whole classroom of students once, uh, transformational coaching students, show up one Saturday afternoon for our classes with WWJD bracelets on. And if you're not familiar with that, it's what would Jesus do? But my students showed up and said, this is how they think now. What would Jackie say about that? What would Jackie do? Borrow my mind, borrow my consciousness, because I promise you, I think differently about life's challenges than most people do.
0: So you said you just sort of talked about the the new program you're working on that launches, I think you said, in January. Tell us about that program and how people connect to it.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. So my website's JackieWoodside.com. The program is called Living in the Domain of Miracles. And it is a six-month coaching program that I will walk people through how to answer these important questions of, Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What are my values? What's my mission? What's my vision? And how am I going to get there? And then after we've done that, I will help you raise your consciousness so that you not only have good ideas, but you have a vibratory pattern that will allow that to come into your life.
0: Beautiful. That's definitely going in show notes for sure. One last question. Yeah. Oftentimes, we have a persona of ourselves or a thought of ourselves that maybe people don't know and we want people to know. So is there anything that people don't know about you that you really wish that they knew?
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say that I didn't want them to know. You know, maybe that I'm the happiest married person that I know.
0: Oh, Wow. That's very good. Congratulations. That's beautiful. I am so
1: incredibly happily married. I love, love, love my spouse. We've been together for 22 years. I don't know if I mentioned in this, I've done a bunch of interviews today. I'm fluent in sign language. Yeah, you mentioned, yeah. I did mention that. Okay, sorry. I've done like three interviews back to back, so I apologize. But so the deaf community is a big part of my life. My spouse is deaf. And I just... You know, if for no other reason, raise your vibe so you can be as happily married as
0: I am. <laughs> I think we all want to be happily married. So I'm happily married for 19 years, almost 20. Yeah. So a couple more years, I'll catch up with you. But it's beautiful.
1: There you go. That's right.
0: Jackie, That's right. thanks so much for coming on. I'll make sure all those things are in the show notes. And I very
1: much appreciate your time. That's so great to be here with you. Thanks for listening.
2: Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindfulmoney. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.